Babysitting is a rite of passage for most teenagers. For 15-year-old Evelyn Hartley, it was the last time she was seen alive. On a crisp fall Saturday night in 1953, she left her home to babysit the daughter of a local college professor and his wife. When she didn't check in at her usual time, her parents knew something was wrong. They never saw their daughter again, and to this day, her fate remains a mystery. I'm Chris. Thanks for watching True Crime Recaps. Our case begins in La Crosse, Wisconsin on October 24, 1953. Evelyn Hartley was a model teenager in every way. At 15, she was a responsible straight-A honor student who loved performing in the school's drama club as much as she loved science and conducting her own experiments. At church, she played piano for the kids in Sunday school, sang in the choir, and often volunteered for nursery duty. She was admired at church, well-liked at school, and much loved at home. And the circumstances in which she disappeared were so completely ordinary, they became terrifying. It all started with a football game, the homecoming game at La Crosse State College to be exact. A very big deal in the little town, and alumni flew in from all over the country. Evelyn was planning to go too, with some friends. But at the last minute, her plans changed. A friend of hers had a regular gig babysitting for the Rasmussen family, but she wanted to go to the game, so she asked Evelyn to fill in for her. Vigo Rasmussen was a professor of math and science at La Crosse State College. He was a colleague of Evelyn's father, who was a biology professor there. The Rasmussens had two daughters. The oldest was seven and a half, and the youngest was a baby, only 20 months old. At 6.30, Vigo picked her up. She looked sharp in her red corduroy side-zipped pedal pushers and new cat-eye glasses. The Rasmussen house was less than two miles away. By 6.45, the couple left for the game with their oldest daughter and a neighbor girl in tow. Evelyn was only responsible for the baby that night. She brought some school books with her and settled in for a night of studying. At 7 p.m., Evelyn's mother remembered an ominous feeling. She felt a sudden urge to call her daughter, but she stopped herself. She would wait to speak with her when she called to check in around 8.30 as usual. Around the same time, the Rasmussen's neighbors, an elderly couple, heard a scream. Then, a door slammed shut. and They figured it was nothing. At 7.15, a motorist was nearly hit by a two-toned green Buick near the Rasmussen's house. A man was behind the wheel. Another man was in the backseat with his arm around a girl who was slumped forward with her head down. He assumed they were whooping it up on homecoming night, and he went about his business. 8.30 came and went without a call from Evelyn. When they tried calling her, the phone just rang and rang. It wasn't at all like Evelyn to ignore her parents, so her father immediately drove over to check on her. But no one answered his knock. He walked around the house and noticed one of the basement windows was open. Its screen was propped against the house. When he crawled through, he saw his daughter's shoe at the bottom of the stairs. Her other shoe was in the living room along with her broken glasses. It's obvious there was some kind of struggle. The furniture was moved, Evelyn's school books were scattered, and muddy shoe prints covered the carpet. The baby, however, was fine, still sleeping in her crib. But Evelyn was nowhere in sight. For the past year, women in the next neighborhood over had been complaining about peeping toms. Reports of the Robbinsdale Peeper, as he came to be known, came in regularly almost every week. And police had set up a nightly watch, hoping to catch the predator. 
One woman looked up to see a man's face staring at her through her basement window as she was tidying up. Another woman was ironing in her basement when she looked up and saw a man leering at her through the window before saying, I'm going to get you. Did the peeper get Evelyn instead? All available officers, about 20 men, responded to the scene that night. The dogs picked up her scent and traced a two-block path from the basement window through the backyard past two neighboring houses, then onto the main road. They lost the scent there. Was she forced into a car and driven away? Following the path of the hounds, police found a trail of evidence. Muddy sneaker prints matched the prints in the living room. Two pools of blood, one on the side of the house about 10 feet from the open window, the other was in the backyard. More blood stains were found on the cement window wall of another neighbor's house, along with fiber fragments from her red pants. A bloody handprint was found in a neighbor's garage, four feet from the ground. The prevailing theory was that she heard a noise from the basement and saw the intruder, or intruders, coming in through the window. She screamed and made a dash for the front door, but they tackled her before she could escape. They took her out of the basement window to their waiting car. I'm saying they because getting her through the window was a two-person job. The one thing they were almost sure of was that this was not a burglary gone wrong. It would have been easy to find an empty home with so many people at the homecoming game. But the lights were on at the Rasmussen home, and Evelyn was clearly visible from the street through the living room window. Police called off the search at 1 a.m. with plans to resume the next day. And people reported hearing screams that night at the Goose Island campground, 15 minutes south of the crime scene off Highway 14. And nobody thought there could be a connection until later in the case. Word quickly spread about the missing babysitter, and by noon Sunday, there was a massive search party with over 1,000 volunteers. What remained of homecoming activities were canceled, and volunteers were sent out to search every square inch of the town, including the sewer systems. Local farmers and hunters were asked to search their property for clues, paying special attention to recently turned earth. Fresh graves were uncovered to make sure her body was not stashed on top of a newly interred resident. The search went on for days. In the meantime, if you wanted a babysitter, you were out of luck. There wasn't a teenager in town whose parents would allow them to babysit. People nailed their basement windows shut, installed iron bars, or barricaded them with heavy cement blocks. Over the next few weeks, mysterious pieces of bloody clothing started turning up. A bloody bra and underwear were found near Highway 14. Her mother confirmed Evelyn wore the same size and brand. Then, a blood-stained pair of gray men's trousers were also found along the same road, four miles away. A man's white shirt torn at the collar was found in a cemetery on a road that passed by the Rasmussen home. A pair of size 11 tennis shoes was found 20 minutes southeast of La Crosse near an area known as Coon Valley. The unique pattern on the soles matched the prints found at the Rasmussen's. Because of the way the pattern was worn down, police determined the owner regularly rode a Whizzer motorbike. And what is that? Exactly what it sounds like. A motorized bike fast enough to whiz past schmucks pedaling a traditional bicycle. A size 36 denim jacket was found not far away from the shoes. Its arms and back were smeared with blood, and the denim pattern matched blood patterns found at the Rasmussen home. A closer look at the jacket revealed worn patches under the armpits. Police took that to mean the owner was someone who wore a harness for work. Think telephone repairman, window washer, or a lumberjack. 
The bottom of the jacket was cut off, which allows them to easily get to their tool belt without the bottom of the jacket getting in the way. Base metal flecks were left behind on the jacket, and bristles from a scrub brush with flecks of metallic paint were found in the left pocket. This narrowed the focus a little. The owner was probably someone who worked with or around machinery, someone who possibly used a grinder to fabricate metal parts. But what, if anything, did it all mean? The police took drastic measures to get answers. A voluntary vehicle inspection program went into effect. Gas station attendants were instructed to look for bloodstains in customers' backseats and trunks. 40,000 cars were checked out and awarded a sticker for their window. It proudly said, My car is okay. Anyone who refused got their license plate number reported to the police. Mass lie detector tests were planned for the 1,700 schoolboys and faculty at Evelyn's High School, the surrounding schools, and La Crosse State College. But in the end, only about 300 were actually tested. Every 10 minutes, a brawny man took a schoolboy from a classroom, hooked him up to a polygraph, and asked, Did you know Evelyn Hartley? Do you know what happened to her? Have you withheld any information about her disappearance? Nothing came of it. Photos of the tennis shoes and jacket were passed around in hopes that someone could identify them. Since both items could be connected to the crime scene, they were the best clues they had, but no one came forward. For years after her disappearance, the trail led back to one of history's most notorious serial killers. Ed Gein, a.k.a. the Butcher of Plainfield, lived two hours outside of La Crosse. On the night of the abduction, he was visiting his aunt who lived near the Rasmussen's neighborhood. Now, that's a pretty big coincidence, but it's most likely just that, a coincidence. The crime doesn't match his infamous M.O. of grave-robbing body parts and fashioning lampshades and book covers from the skin of corpses. But a prevailing theory is that he saw Evelyn alone and couldn't resist. But like any theory in an unsolved case, there are pros and cons. Was Ed Gein capable of kidnap and murder? Yes. In 1957, he was arrested for the murder of Bernice Warden. A search of his property revealed every kind of horror you can imagine, except any evidence linking him to Evelyn's case. He died in prison in 1984, convicted of two murders, Bernice and Mary Hogan, the owner of a bar Ed liked. And both women were in their 50s, much older than the missing teenager. He always denied any involvement in her disappearance, and he passed two lie detector tests for what that's worth. His connection to her case is a wild theory, but it's by no means the only one. Some think a construction worker killed and buried her at a nearby construction site. The Rasmussen neighborhood was still being developed at that time, and there were plenty of isolated construction sites around, but... Wouldn't the massive search party have focused on the possibility of a body buried under concrete and rubble? Then, in 2004, a man named Mel Williams came forward with a tape recording of a conversation he captured decades earlier at a bar in Lafarge, Wisconsin, about 45 minutes from La Crosse. According to the Journal Gazette, he was interviewing one of his regulars, Clyde Tywee Peterson when another regular prompted him to talk about the time he kidnapped a girl. According to the article, Tywee said he went to lacrosse with a local vagabond by the name of Jack Golfer. Somehow, Jack knew of Evelyn and where she was babysitting that night. 
They allegedly abducted her and took her to their friend's farmhouse. Jack killed her there and buried her body. Unfortunately, by the time the tape surfaced, the people involved were long gone. Jack committed suicide in the early 60s, and Tywee died in the 70s. So, there's no way of knowing for sure if they really were the guys who did it. And you're probably wondering, why hasn't the evidence been retested with modern technology? The answer is, they can't. The blood evidence wasn't collected with future DNA testing in mind, and over the years, the jacket and the tennis shoes were lost somewhere between the La Crosse Police Department and the Madison State Police Lab. These days, when fall comes around, the older people in La Crosse think back to when they were teenagers. The year Halloween, Homecoming, and the Vanished Babysitter were all anyone could talk about. And they still wonder, what happened to Evelyn Hartley? Janice Rasmussen, the baby found alone at the bloody crime scene, was never allowed to babysit, nor was her older sister. After that night, her parents sold their house as quickly as they could. They never had another good night's sleep there, knowing what had happened. The first thing they did in their new home was put steel bars on the basement windows. As for Evelyn's family, her parents have passed away, and her siblings just want to remember her as she was, with no more speculation about what became of her. And that's your recap. Thanks for spending this time with us today, but don't go away. There's another recap coming up right now. And if you like getting all the crime in half the time, please remember to subscribe and hit the bell so you never miss a story. Until next time, take care.